0: I then met with Dr. Schwartzberg to discuss the survey findings in metastatic disease. And to begin, we reviewed data related to the selection of endocrine therapy in the postmenopausal patient who develops metastatic disease while receiving an aromatase inhibitor, where the most common second line therapy utilized by oncologists in practice as well as investigators was fulvestrin. This is a very common case that we're faced with in the clinic every day.
1: A patient who has had chemotherapy and then has received an AI as first-line therapy as adjuvant treatment and then relapses, in this case, while on the AI at three years after initial diagnosis. This patient has the type of relapse that you typically see for patients at hormone receptor-positive disease, that is bone-only disease. And although the case doesn't mention it, particularly we'll presume that she's not very symptomatic. So then the question is, what's the thinking pattern for the next line of therapy? And I would certainly agree that hormonal therapy is absolutely the best option in this case. You have a patient with bone-only disease who's hormone positive, and although they've relapsed on their adjuvant therapy, we might get a considerable amount of mileage out of further endocrine therapy. There's actually very little clinical trial data to suggest what to do in this case because the information we have on patients who have relapsed from an AI in the adjuvant setting is recent and we don't have long-term trials to look at this. So we have to extrapolate from the other studies that have been done in the metastatic setting using an AI as first-line therapy and then what would be the most appropriate second-line therapy. And the data there suggests that we have three different options. And those options would include, number one, switching to a second AI, and one could choose a steroidal AI. The second option would be to switch to fulvestrant, which is a different type of drug. It's an estrogen receptor down regulator, so a pure anti-estrogen receptor drug. Or the third option would be to use a SERM, and most commonly, one would use tamoxifen in this case, since the patient has not previously been exposed to it. The clinical trial data we have suggests that fulvestrant is equivalent to a second-line AI, and that's been studied in head-to-head trials. In the first-line setting, a trial looked at fulvestrant versus tamoxifen in patients that had previously not been treated in first-line metastatic disease. That trial included patients that were hormone-unknown as well as hormone-receptor-positive, positive. For the hormone receptor positive group, there was equivalence between fulvestrant and tamoxifen. In the fulvestrant versus AI studies, second line, there was also equivalence to a suggestion that there might be slight advantages to fulvestrant in some of the endpoints, but not the primary endpoint. So my thinking on this patient is, I would rather use a different option than another drug that works by the same mechanism. So I would choose fulvestrant in this case, And I certainly think that I would vote in that case with the majority who picked fulvestrant alone as the endocrine therapy in this case.
0: Let's shift over into the issue of chemotherapy for metastatic disease, and specifically the issue of first-line therapy in a patient who's never had a taxane. It's always so interesting to me to see
1: when there's disparity among the clinical investigators and the community. Sometimes there's no consensus among either group, but in this case we clearly see that investigators, a large majority, are saying that paclitaxel would be their drug of choice. I think if you look at the data, and it has to be extrapolated a little bit, in my opinion, it's very clear now that paclitaxel weekly is the best way to give paclitaxel. We have the C-A-L-G-B data, which supported paclitaxel in the first-line metastatic setting, weekly therapy as being the, both the superior therapy in terms of response rate as well as less overall toxicity, although neuropathy needs to be kept in mind with the weekly therapy as being a little bit more than in the Q3 week, but much less in the way of hematologic toxicity. We also have E1199, the large adjuvant trial, that looked at all four types of therapy, paclitaxel weekly, paclitaxel every three weeks, docetaxel weekly, and docetaxel every three weeks, And although in the main comparison, there was no significant difference, in the subgroup analyses, paclitaxel weekly was clearly, in my mind, the winner in terms of a greater efficacy, even in that large adjuvant setting where it's harder to tease out the effect in terms of disease-free survival, but also less toxicity as well. So I think if I give paclitaxel, if that's the drug I've decided to use, then weekly paclitaxel makes the most sense both from an efficacy perspective and reducing toxicity. And we always try to keep both of those factors in mind when we're treating patients in the metastatic breast cancer setting because it's a palliative treatment. Now, docetaxel, I think it's been fairly clearly shown that every three-week docetaxel is superior to weekly docetaxel. Weekly docetaxel enjoyed a lot of interest and enthusiasm around 2000. And there was some early data that was very provocative that came out of John Hainsworth and his group. A lot of people adopted it. I always found that fatigue was difficult with that. The every three-week dose of taxol, particularly at the full dose of 100 milligrams per meter squared, there's quite a bit of neutropenia. But when one gives that with growth factor prophylactically, as would be the standard per NCCN and ASCO guidelines, then you get away from that toxicity and you can deliver... Full doses, or if you like, somewhat lower doses, 75 milligrams every three weeks, and that's effective therapy as well. So the fact that the community oncologist voted for docetaxel every three weeks is good. Again, I'm a little puzzled by the every weekly docetaxel and the every three week paclitaxel based on what I think now is an abundance of data supporting those as less effective ways of giving the drugs
0: it's actually interesting that 13% of the docs in practice are using Q3-week paclitaxel, and actually 13% are using Q-week docetaxel. So about a quarter of the oncologists are using regimens that you just sort of suggested or shouldn't be utilized. Yeah, I agree. I think it's an educational opportunity
1: and needs to get out there again.
0: Now, about one out of five investigators cited NAB paclitaxel as their preferred first-line taxing. What's your preferred first-line agent?
1: Well, I voted for nabpaclitaxel in this particular question because I have found it to be a drug that is very easy to deliver. We have done a fair amount of research using weekly nabpaclitaxel and have found that it's not only an effective drug, either alone or in combination. We've looked at it with capecitabine, for example, and have seen a high response rate, but very easy to give and very little in the way of toxicity. Again, the weekly treatment with paclitaxel is a superior treatment when you're giving the cremaphore agent as in standard paclitaxel. But the NAB paclitaxel gives the advantage of, first of all, delivering somewhat higher doses, and second of all, getting away from pre-medications to deliver the drug. There's also some data from the clinical trials that the neuropathy, which is the dose-limiting side effect for paclitaxel in general, while it may not be less Intense in terms of the grade of neuropathy with nab-paclitaxel, there is some suggestion from the clinical trial work that neuropathy resolves faster when it occurs in the setting of having received nab-paclitaxel as compared to creme for paclitaxel.
0: Now, one of the things that was really interesting, I think I actually mentioned this to you when I saw you at the ASCO meeting was we had previously asked this question, we repeated it again in this survey, about using premedications with with nabpaclitaxel. And I was kind of shocked because even though almost none of the investigators used pre-medications, you know, 41% of the docs in practice were using some kind of pre-medications with nab, and 25% of that was using steroids. And we tried to tease out the reason why they were doing that. And there were a variety of reasons, but the most common was for anti emetic purposes. Another common reason was that the institutional algorithm includes premedication for taxines, and about twenty percent of the docs thought that the clinical trial data supported using premedications. Another reason cited by about twenty percent was concern about NAB hypersensitivity, and yet to my knowledge, premedications and steroids were not used in any of the NAB trials. Right. I totally agree. I'm very surprised by this data and
1: particularly surprised that as time has gone on, you really haven't seen the numbers creep up to no premedication. So again, I think the reasons are very interesting. The emetogenic potential of paclitaxel is considered low. And so there really is no standard reason to use steroids here. I'm also very concerned, particularly when patients get weekly therapy about giving them a weekly bolus of steroids. Women frequently have a lot of problem with insomnia and nervousness with this. Older patients are frequently diabetic or on mass a pre-diabetic condition. I think if we can get away and we don't have to use steroids, although they're wonderful drugs, which we use every day in many patients in oncology, we should only use them when it's appropriate. And there's really no standard reason to give steroids for anti purposes here, as half of the oncologists suggested. I think the fact that the algorithm in a third of the people who are using premedications is generalized for all taxanes is something that should be immediately changed. We're moving into an era of evidence-based therapy, of quality medicine and pay for performance, and the insurers are increasingly scrutinizing the way we're treating patients. Down occasionally to the premedications, and certainly to the supportive measures that we use now, and so this would be very difficult to justify in an era where electronic medical records are increasingly being used. It would seem to be a simple matter to alter the algorithm and take out the premedications for NAB paclitaxel while leaving them for cremophore-based paclitaxel.
0: Another question we asked and kind of trying to integrate everything people bring to the table in terms of clinical experience and reading about trials or hearing about trials was their overall take on the efficacy and safety and tolerability of two different therapies. And for example, we asked them to compare NAB to docetaxel. What we see is a substantial number of the docs, about half the investigators and about a third of the docs in practice, think that NAB is more efficacious And actually, two thirds of the investigators and half of the docs think that it's more tolerable than docetaxel. How did you respond to that question? And what do you think about these answers? I think these answers,
1: particularly from the clinical trialists, are based on the knowledge of Bill Gradishaw's randomized phase two trial that was presented at San Antonio in two thousand and six. And that's an interesting, fairly large randomized phase two trial that looks at a couple of different doses of weekly napaxetaxel versus every three-week docetaxel. And it also includes an every three-week paclitaxel arm as well, which was the label for NAB paclitaxel. So in that study, the weekly NAB paclitaxel appeared superior to the every three-week paclitaxel, and also appeared superior, the weekly dosing appeared superior to docetaxel. The 150 looked a little better than the 100, but at the expense of a bit more toxicity. He looked at the combined toxicity of weekly napaclitaxel. It was substantially less than docetaxel. And that's why I think you're seeing that the majority of both doctors in practice and the clinical investigators believe that data, that it actually is safer and more tolerable. And in terms of the efficacy, I think it depends on how you interpret the data, because it is still a randomized phase two study. But I would vote that it's somewhat more efficacious in a weekly than the best dosing of docetaxel, which, as I said before, is the
0: every-three-week dosing, and that's actually the dosing that Bill picked to do the trial. You know, it's kind of interesting. You look in the metastatic setting, and you see these issues going about the taxanes and the role of NAB, but then you come into the adjuvant setting, and what you actually see is sort of suddenly docetaxels are really coming onto people's radar, first with the TCH regimen for HER2-positive tumors, and then the TC regimen for HER2-negative tumors. So it's kind of interesting to see whether or not in the future this sort of nab versus docetaxel thing plays out in trials in the adjuvant setting. Yeah, I hope we have the opportunity to see
1: nab paclitaxel in the adjuvant setting as a treatment option compared to what I agree with you in an increasing and resurgent use of docetaxel, particularly with the two regimens that you mentioned, non-anthrocycline regimens, first for what I would consider anyway lower risk patients who need chemotherapy. In my particular practice, generally node-negative patients, because I still believe that three drugs are better than two in node-positive patients.
0: Hal Burstein, as you know, was the other investigator who worked with us on this survey, and I was talking with him about the adjuvant data in terms of TC and TCH, and it's interesting now, two years after the first presentation of the TC data by Steve Jones, we're really starting to see over the last six months or a year a major increase in the use of this regimen. Yeah, I agree with you. Another issue, and it's a super common situation in metastatic disease, is the patient who's had chemotherapy in the past, adjuvant chemotherapy, endocrine therapy, in this case, five years of an AI, and then slowly develops progressive metastatic disease, not very symptomatic, goes through a bunch of hormones, and now the patient's resistant to hormones, and what do you do? And what we see here is that the investigators, the most common choice is either paclitaxel BEV or capecitabine alone, and a lot of people, I think, sort of flip whatever they don't use in first line for second line. The docs in practice are a little more heterogeneous in how they approach this, a whole bunch of different options, including paclitaxel alone in 13%. I think these data are very provocative, too, and it looks like the investigators are
1: driven by clinical trials, and the practicing doctors tend to be more creative in terms of different options, and there's no consensus among practitioners about the right approach here, clearly, from the results that you got. I answered this question, of being alone, and the reason I did that was based on the phrase there that the patient had minimal tumor symptoms. So I take the long view for this patient. This patient's going to be exposed to multiple agents, and I want to probably ease her into therapy And based on her own decisions, which you can't figure everything into a question like this, but obviously this is the kind of thing where you sit down and talk to a patient very frankly and say, we're moving into a need for chemotherapy, and we have a couple of different options. And in fact, you know, it becomes a patient decision, I would agree, paclitaxel and bevacizumab seems to have the best time-to-progression data out there in randomized trials, although these things haven't been compared head-to-head, so... But that's obviously much more complicated. It's weekly chemotherapy, as you mentioned before, and then getting a second drug. And it really changes the lifestyle of the patient. Whereas capecitabine alone is an oral therapy. It's similar to what they've already been on. And that is frequently the choice of patients as they ease back into chemotherapy.
0: Another issue is this question of capecitabine and bevacizumab. This survey was done several months after ASCO, so we had George Sledge's Excalibur data, right. and it's interesting. We made this case ER positive, and in terms of George's presentation, in terms of the response to cape Cytobine bevacizumab based on a receptor status, can you talk a little bit about what he presented and what you think about this issue of CAPE and BEV? Well, I think George's data was again some unexpected data, but
1: that's why clinical trials are so endlessly fascinating because they sometimes give you answers you don't expect, and they often send you in new directions as they generate hypotheses. And I would put the Excalibur data in that setting of generating hypotheses. So what it showed is that actually for the whole group there would seem to be a mod. It was a phase two study, so it wasn't a comparative study, but seemed to be only a modest benefit of capecitabine plus bevacizumab, which actually mirrors the original trial that Kathy Miller did in heavily pretreated patients of capecitabine and bevacizumab, which did not meet its primary endpoint. However, when George went back and looked at the ER status of the patients who received cape and bev. It turned out that the ER ER-positive patients had a dramatically better response to the combination than the ER ER-negative patients, probably not what most people would have anticipated. And if I recall correctly, the time to progression was something like threefold higher for the ER ER-positive patients compared to the ER ER-negative, and was really rather short for the ER ER-negative patients. Again, not what you would necessarily expect, where you would think that those patients might actually respond better to chemotherapy, or at least as good as those that are ER ER-positive. So that's not what we saw. It was still a small group, and I think it needs to be explored prospectively. But if one is thinking about this, then maybe ER ER-positive patients in the future are gonna be the ones that benefit from CAPE and BEV. Now, in the survey, only 4% of investigators or practitioners thought that. So I think everyone's waiting for more data.
0: And another question we asked, have you used Bevacizumab for metastatic breast cancer? And essentially all the investigators have, but I was surprised that 24% of the docs in practice said, I've not used Bev for metastatic breast cancer. I don't know how much that relates to reimbursement and how geographic it might be, but what's your take on that? I think that's a high number too. I was a bit
1: surprised at this point that that's still true. But It's very clearly related to reimbursement. And I can tell you that in my own environment, which tends to be, in most cases, a relatively liberal reimbursement environment, I get tremendous scrutiny about this. So much so that many carriers do not pay for it at all because it's not FDA approved yet. And for those that do pay for it, I am only getting approval with Paclitaxel based on the data that has been submitted to the FDA. Really? What about NAB? Uh, I've tried NAB, and sometimes yes, sometimes no.
0: Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Now, we have a couple of cases that we can go through, what I call the tandem situation, which is first-line therapy, metastatic breast cancer, in the patient who has an ER ER-positive, HER2-positive tumor. Right. And there have been a lot of discussions and controversies about this specific subset, so we're really curious to see what's going on in practice. And we presented a situation of a 65-year-old woman with an ER-PR-positive, HER2-positive tumor first relapse, minimal symptoms, a few lung and bone mets, and we're saying the patient received adjuvant AC-paclitaxel followed by tamoxifen. And she's been on tamoxifen for three years at the point she develops minimally symptomatic disease. And if you look at these responses, you see a big shift from the pre-tandem era, which I'm going to ask you to talk about. And I think prior to that trial being reported, by far the most common strategy would have been hormone therapy in this situation, But now we see that about half the investigators and about a third of the docs in practice are saying hormone therapy plus trastuzumab. We actually have a number of people who bring in chemotherapy at that point, either with the trastuzumab or trastuzumab and hormones. How do you generally approach this kind of patient? What do you think about the spectrum of responses we're seeing here? I think this is evolving data based on the clinical trial, the tandem data that you
1: mentioned. So a couple of things about the case as presented. The patient is still asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. So that should be taken into account. I actually don't think this is that unrealistic a case. Three years of tamoxifen therapy is just about the point where patients were treated before the adjuvant data came out. So we actually have a fair number of these patients. What specifically
0: would you likely utilize in this situation? I would use a non-steroidal AI and trastuzumab. Would you consider using chemotherapy in addition to this in terms of the patients who are symptomatic or had visceral disease? And how would you integrate the hormone therapy? Again, same situation, first relapse, ER positive, HER2 positive, but the patient's sick with visceral Mets. So in that case, I would use chemotherapy and trastuzumab.
1: If the patient is sick, and particularly since they're relapsing on endocrine therapy here, it's not as if they've never been exposed. In this case, it's tamoxifen, but it wouldn't matter to me if it was an AI that they had been on. I would move to chemotherapy and trastuzumab. The reason I would do that is because the response rates are very high, the symptom control are very high, and that there is a survival advantage in that case as well. And I don't think in that case you have time to wait for a progression where a patient is symptomatic. If half the patients are going to progress at four months anyway, they may be very sick, and then you may not have an opportunity to salvage them.
0: We also asked about the issue of management of the patient with a HER2-positive tumor after receiving prior adjuvant trastuzumab, and we're starting to see patients like that. Hopefully, we won't see too many, and the question here is lapatinib versus trastuzumab, and sort of to summarize what we found was that the key was the interval since the adjuvant trastuzumab. Basically, three years later, trastuzumab would be the most common anti-HER2 therapy utilized, repeating it now after adjuvant therapy. Whereas with shorter disease-free intervals, in the case we presented was six months, the most common anti-HER2 therapy there was lapatinib, which was used with capecitabine. So I'm guessing there's sort of a continuum in terms of sort of what the interval's been between six months and three years since the patient had adjuvant trastuzumab. Do you agree with this sort of general approach to looking at disease-free interval and deciding which anti-HER2 therapy you're going to use? I do agree with that, and I think
1: that we extrapolate from what we know about chemotherapy. So if a patient was treated with adjuvant chemotherapy and the longer the amount of time has elapsed between the original adjuvant therapy and the relapse, the more likely they are to respond to similar type agents or even the same agent again. And in previous years, that was tested and shown to be true. So it's kind of arbitrary in terms of making a decision of how long is long enough to go back to trastuzumab. We're lucky now to have a second anti-HER2 agent, which is lipatinib. But again, when you're thinking about these patients that unfortunately relapse with HER2-positive disease, you have to think of about the long haul. And undoubtedly, these patients are going to be exposed to both lipatinib and trastuzumab again. So it comes down to a sequencing question rather than are you picking one agent over the other? I think we're moving in metastatic breast cancer and particularly in HER2 positive patients who went from being the worst subset of patients with metastatic disease to, in my opinion now, the best subgroup. And I have patients that are living with extensive metastatic disease three, four, five years with a variety of anti-HER2 directed therapies. So you really have to just make the decision which is best for the patient to start. Now, in years to come, it may be that if a patient has failed trastuzumab, that even at three years, lapatinib is the best drug, but we have a much more limited data set on lapatinib than we do in trastuzumab. So, for patients that you think may respond again in a drug that's very well known and has very minimal toxicity, trastuzumab based therapy makes sense. In patients that are refractory, that is that of relapse while on trastuzumab or within a few months or even a year that's the kind of the time point that i would use is probably a year or 18 months of therapy from their last trastuzumab i'll use lapatinib if it's before that time because we have data now that shows lapatinib and capecitabine combination is very effective in those groups
0: Another thing I want to ask you about really relates to the issue of bevacizumab, and we presented a bunch of cases where we said, just put aside the issue of reimbursement cost, financial issues, and let's just focus on the clinical science, and hopefully, eventually the finances maybe will get straightened out. Just tell us, based on clinical parameters and data, what you think the best choice would be. So the first situation is a 65-year-old woman, triple negative tumor, received adjuvant AC in the past, and now she has metastatic disease, seeking a second opinion. Her doc had recommended single-agent paclitaxel, and he's questioning you as a second opinion whether or not to add in bevacizumab. And what we're seeing here is that the majority of investigators feel in this situation that Beb should be added. What are your thoughts about this scenario and whether or not to bring Bev in? Well, I think you have to go back to the clinical trial data, and if you
1: look at E2100, it suggests, first of all, somewhat surprisingly, that this type of patient treated with paclitaxel alone in the best Schedule weekly schedule is only going to have around a 20% response rate to the single agent, so the response rate goes up, and perhaps more importantly, the progression-free survival doubles with the addition of bevacizumab, with modest increase in although some increase in toxicity. So I think it would generally be a good idea to add bevacizumab to the paclitaxel, and the case is set up that paclitaxel makes perfect sense because the patient hasn't been exposed previously to any taxane, So I think this is the perfect case for paclitaxel and bevacizumab.
0: We also presented an 85-year-old woman, exact same situation, again, questioning whether to add Bev. And in general, support for that, but looks like it drops off a little bit based on her age. Do you buy into that? I do. I think, you know, it's easy when you're answering questions as opposed to seeing
1: the patient across from you. But again, we're always considering the goals of therapy here. And an 85-year-old otherwise healthy patient is great, but still speaking from toxicity in these patients, and we're seeing many more of patients in their 80s who are relatively healthy. That said, they should be treated relatively aggressively, but they do incur increased toxicity even to standard therapies, although they probably respond just as well as younger patients. I think it's fairly clear particularly from the work of Mus and CLGB, that the response rates are similar for older patients, but the toxicity is increased. So here you have to balance the toxicity from the efficacy. Adding Bevacizumab to Paclitaxel does increase toxicity somewhat, and particularly cardiovascular toxicity, or particularly hypertension. So in E2100, 15% of patients had grade three hypertension, which required therapy. I probably wouldn't want to stress an 85-year-old heart with bevacizumab unless the patient had no other comorbidities and was symptomatic from her disease, in which case I would consider it. But for the majority, I would probably answer, I would not advise adding bevacizumab, but would be comfortable with that being done.
0: You were talking about this issue of differences in response of docs and practice versus investigators. There was a question related to continuation of Bev and metastatic disease, and we asked people agree, disagree, or in between, patients with metastatic disease who experience prolonged useful responses to BEV with chemo should be presented with the option of continuing BEV and switching to another chemotherapy at the time of progression. And we see here that more than half of the docs in practice say yes, but only about 20% of the investigators. And I was wondering whether or not this is sort of a carryover from the colon data that the docs in practice are so familiar with, particularly Axel Grothy's presentation at ASCO of the bright data which kind of surprised people and that it looked like continuation in the sort of registry setting of the BEV really led to better results or was correlated with better results. So I don't know whether or not the colon message now is kind of having an overlap into breast, particularly in the docs and practice. What do you think about these data and how do you approach this situation? Yeah, I, I agree with you completely,
1: Neil. And I think it reflects the fact that the practitioners tend to see not only breast cancer, but they see all types of cancer, and they see the common breast, colon, lung, and prostate every day. So they do draw inferences, and I do myself as a practitioner from other diseases when they're appropriate to draw. In colon cancer, we have a couple of lines of evidence that. Suggest it might be a little bit different, and that is that we have the second-line study of fulfox plus Bevacizumab, which showed a benefit for adding Bevacizumab in the second line, importantly, in Bevacizumab-naive patients, so that doesn't get to the same question. And then we've got the BRIGHT registry data, which we participated in, as did many other, in fact, probably the majority of people you polled might have been in that registry because it was a very large registry, which showed a very significant Benefit to continuing bevacizumab beyond progression, although it's biased by the fact that it is longitudinal registry data. So I think that is being extrapolated into breast cancer. A couple of notes of caution: first of all, we have the negative K plus bev trial in breast cancer, although that wasn't second line; it was in third and beyond. So that's a little bit different than perhaps the colon data. And the other thing that is being suggested, and this is going to be very interesting. And you have some questions about other therapy with bevacizumab. So I think it's an unsettled issue because as the data is maturing in colon cancer, there's a suggestion that there might be a ceiling effect of bevacizumab in the sense that if you give better chemotherapy, first-line chemotherapy in colorectal cancer, you get less incremental benefit from the addition of bevacizumab. So it worked very well with IFL, which wasn't as good as Folfox, or zeolox, and when you add it to those regimens, one explanation is that it gives some benefit, but it's modest benefit. So if you extrapolate that back to breast, then we probably do need to see the results of the ribbon one trial and other trials that are going on and make sure that bevacizumab added to chemotherapy is the same across many different types of chemotherapy. We don't know the answer to that yet.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Of course, obviously, it's not the same disease, but 5-FU plus Bev is a pretty effective therapy in colon cancer, and even Cape plus Bev is pretty effective. So it seems like there's a little bit of a difference, at least in terms of the data we have to work with. The last thing I want to ask you about is we asked a number of questions related to what do you say to patients about different things, trying to tease out how people integrate their experience and their exposure to clinical research. And one question we said was, you're going to start a patient with metastatic breast cancer on bevacizumab, and you're discussing the potential risks of hypertension and cardiovascular events. What would you say to a patient about what the risk is of this happening? So in terms of hypertension, both the docs in practice as well and the investigators gave an average of about a 20% chance to patients of developing hypertension. And in terms of cardiovascular events on Bev, Investigators said the risk is about 5%, docs in practice, 9%. What numbers do you usually give to patients? What do you think about the numbers here? I think these numbers are pretty right on from what the clinical trials showed.
1: So 15 to 20% of patients will require medical treatment with antihypertensive therapy. And thromboembolic event probably varies from disease to disease somewhat, and it also is probably age-dependent and comorbidity-dependent. I think in the breast cancer trial, it was around 4%. Most of those events now, it's becoming clear with bevacizumab are arterial, and there probably is a very minimal increased risk, if any at all, for a VTE or venous thromboembolism. So I think you have to screen your patients carefully, and those that have arterial problems or have significant coronary artery disease need to be evaluated very carefully for the use of Bevacizumab. Those that have preexisting renal disease, and particularly who have proteinuria of any degree, should probably not get the drug. And patients who have hard to control hypertension probably should not get, but any other patient are probably good candidates.